This is This Week in Common Sense, and I'm none other than Paul Jacob. And this is Friday the 13th, so in the spirit of the uh, holiday, uh, <laughs> do you have anything special to say? <laughs> you know, it's funny, uh, I always notice when it's Friday the 13th, I'm not really all that superstitious, but uh, but I always notice. So let's just be careful. So I guess we can forget the numerology, but how do you feel about the month so far? It just seems like the whole country is quieter. Partly because I'm not listening to any of the news, hardly. <laughs> and and because Donald Trump is tweeting and so on, but he hasn't been out there. And so, you know, it just seems like uh, the, the news has been less than it usually is the less uh, less of that kind of frenetic urgency and and hype, um, and I noticed positive headlines in the in the Washington Post for the first time in four years. They the first headline the first day was Biden moves quickly or something. You know, it, it reminded me of kind of of uh, high school journalism, and so and so was very excited. You know, everything was, he said, I'm excited. Uh, so the Washington Post is quite excited. Um, we should probably begin with Monday's commentary, which is about a, uh, a fellow, uh, Mr. Kennecott, Philip Kennecott, who is the art and architecture critic for the Washington Post. And he wrote a column that really wasn't much about art or architecture, uh, but was critical. And that's what a critic's for. And he was critical of Donald Trump. I mean, you just never see that in the Washington Post. Never in those four years that they ever print a column or a story that wasn't, you know, just lionizing Mr. Trump. But all of a sudden, here comes Philip Kennecott and... Uh, his main pitch was that basically what a rotten country we live in because we didn't repudiate Trump. And his view is that the 70 million, I mean, 6 million more people voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than voted for him in 2016. Now, Biden it appears has gotten well more votes than Hillary Clinton did. And so Biden's still ahead by, I guess it's 4 million votes, something like that. Uh, it's about 75 million to 71 million. Um, and of course, that's not how we elect the president anyway. So it's all about the states. But what's interesting is it he's right. It was not. This election was not a repudiation of Donald Trump. Now, I tend to think that Republicans did better in the Senate, and they did better for the House, uh, and they did better at, in state legislatures than they did at the presidential level. And I do think that that is due to a, a great deal of fatigue, uh, Trump fatigue, and and fatigue of Trump and his tweeting, but also fatigue of the media then going berserk and haywire and hyping and, and fear-mongering it. <clears throat> and somewhere between being concerned about Trump and just being tired of all the the you know 
frenetic moaning and and rioting and and just the country. And, and in some ways, I do think that it's possible that while the protests uh, turned riots, um, and not that necessarily they were the same thing at any time, but but uh, all of that rioting and unrest hurt, I think, the Democrats very much because of the way they didn't condemn it, uh, of the fact that they want this sort of society in which people out to, out to eat on a Friday night, Saturday night, uh, might be accosted and and threatened if they don't, you know, raise a clenched fist and and recite whatever slogan, you know, the uh, hoodlums that are threatening them uh, want them to recite. All of all of that, I think, helped Republicans, but I suspect it didn't help Trump as much. And part of that is because I think the Trump four years has been so different and largely because of the media just over the topness 24 seven, but also because he's a different sort of guy. He's not a politician. He says things in ways that I think most people, you know, who try can understand, but they're not the usual ways that politicians have said things. And I think he's, he's hardcore on some issues that, that the left and that the media are going to have a big problem with him. And uh, libertarians oftentimes have problems with him. I have problems with some of his issues. But it seems like it wasn't the issues. And one of the interesting things about Philip Kennecott's piece is that right off the bat, he kind of comes out and says, uh, I'll leave the issues and the policies, if he had any, to the pundits. And so you're immediately, at least I am, kind of taken aback. So your problem has nothing to do with any of the policies he implemented. And I suspect that if if we explain the policies to Mr. Kennecott, he might have trouble with some of them. But that wasn't where this was coming from. His problem was with the persona of Trump and the way Trump said things or tweeted or and and frankly, not that it's it's not okay to have a problem with the way somebody does something as opposed to what they do. And and I don't like I didn't like some of his language and so on and so on. But but to kind of build up this this is the worst president ever. This is a wannabe dictator. This is a greater threat to mankind than Xi Jinping and the Chinazis who have 2 million Uyghurs in concentration camps. I mean, that kind of just insane Trump is the most horrible human being ever and the biggest threat ever to the planet. And then to kind of say, oh, policies, issues? No, we just didn't like him. He's kind of he's kind of a cad. He's kind of an arrogant, obnoxious guy. He's kind of, you know, he doesn't talk nice to people always. And, and, you know, it, it, it really is kind of bracing to think that someone could get that apoplectic about a person and then have nothing really substantive to say about their presidency. But, uh, but that, that, that seems to be the case uh, more and more that, uh, you know, when you get to the bottom of what is it that he's done, 
Um, I've argued with people where it's it's what he's going to do. Well, he's been in office for four years. You're worried about what he's going to do, but you don't have any experience where he actually, you know, did something you didn't like. Um, and not that there isn't anything he's done they dislike, but it just again and again is not the policies. It's the person. And uh, and what I dislike most about that is that it's then flipped on the people who supported Mr. Trump. And I, I look at elections and I look at voting and I think people can vote for ignorant reasons. They can be mistaken about stuff. But I have absolutely no interest in critiquing other people's voting. We're all trying to defend ourselves from this massive government with massive power that does all kinds of things, which we may like in part, not like in part, hate, whatever. Um, and so we're trying to get some, some benefit. We're trying to steer the ship of state in some small way with our vote. We all recognize that we're not able to just wave a wand and make things happen. And so, you know, look, if if uh, one thing that Trump did, very tangible, is he had a problem with transgender people serving in the military. Um, and I suspect it was related to the fact that he didn't want to, he didn't want the military to have to pay for a bunch of surgeries or different different things. And he wondered how how cohesive units would be the more that you have gen transgender people in service now. If a transgender friend of mine said, I'm voting for Biden because Trump won't give me an equal opportunity to be in the military. Well, what am I going to say? Well, why would you do that? Well, I understand exactly why he's doing that, because the issue that impacts him or her the most is is that issue. And, you know, I find that I'm increasingly concerned about China. Uh, and and what that totalitarian regime means to the rest of the world. So the fact that Trump was far better, I think, on China, I think almost any reasonable person who looked at Biden's history and Trump's history on China, even believing that Trump did every good thing he did, he did by some accidental reason and is really a terrible, horrible guy, he still looks a lot better on that policy. So the more that policy matters to you, the more that's a bigger issue than, say, tax rates or or regulation or what have you. And look, if you're a businessman whose company is being regulated to death, well, that may be your number one. So when we look at people and and kind of want to say, how could how could you possibly vote for this person or that person? It's it's a very inexact science. And I think I think you come off looking like a like. An idiot when you try to just browbeat people as if somehow you have all the wisdom in the world, uh, somebody might be trying to accomplish something very specific through their vote. And, and I say, more power to you. I hope you get what you want. Frankly, I think what we always find after voting is that, boy, even if we consider ourselves to be really poor, we have much better voting power with our dollars in our pocket than we do with our vote. And I think that is is incontrovertible. I'm sure somebody will controvert it. But uh, but anyway, this this uh, 
this hit on Trump people who I think, I think there are several slices of the Trump electorate. I think there are people who don't like him at all, but see that he's had some success. I think there are people who like him as much as they wince at times as to certain things he he does, but they believe we've got to have someone in there with the guts or the irascibility or something to take on the power structure. And I tend to sympathize with that. I don't know that you have to have, you know, you have to be, uh, say things like Trump does. I don't know that, you know, early in his uh, in his tenure, there was a lot of talk about him using uh, saying damn or or different words that uh, that that he wasn't supposed to use. You know, you, you don't have to do that to be tough on on the, the folks in, in Washington. So, you know, it, it's certainly true. You don't have to have all those things. But I think what people who want to dismiss all the Trump supporters as just people who are somehow in love with Donald Trump, what they miss is how badly people have wanted someone to stand up to the powers that be in Washington. And frankly, um, you know, I, 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 you know, haven't cried any tears over Donald Trump. I think will survive in some ways. He sucks so much of the energy out of politics that it, I think it made it difficult for people like me and others because everything was all about Trump. Um, but I have a ton of respect for the fact that he stood up against China in ways that we've talked about again and again here from little things like the postal treaty uh, to bigger things like, you know what, we're not letting our, our government employees' pension funds be invested in Chinese companies that are spurring the Chinese military so that they can continue to threaten people like the free people of Taiwan with military and attack. Um, Donald Trump stood up against that. He stood up against critical race theory and some of the other ridiculous things that the federal government is, is involved in. And Frankly, I uh, and I, I come to this. My my father, who voted for Donald Trump, I think he was the only person in our family, and I've got five brothers and sisters, and lots of nephews and nieces and cousins, and he was the only person who kind of said, "I'm voting for Donald Trump." And I remember saying to him, "But Dad, you know, Trump isn't exactly your guy. I mean, some of the things he says." And my dad immediately going, "Look, you agreed." Agreed. But he is the only guy who will do anything different than the status quo. And on that point, I think he was 100 percent correct. And so um, I have I, I, I used to tell a friend who was a big Trump supporter during the 16 campaign that I'm scared of Trump. I'm scared of your candidate. I'm scared of what he'll do. Um, and uh, I'm a lot less scared than I was in 2016. I'm a lot more scared now as to what Biden will do, particularly. I mean, he'll do all kinds of terrible things, I think, in terms of regulation and the whole the whole attitude about government will be how much can we spend? How much can we do instead of looking at it more like a businessman? Um, 
But I'm most concerned about whether we will go back to the, hey, let's just let people make money off the big Chinese market and do whatever the Chinazis tell us to do. Let's not make a big fuss. We'll be rich. You know, it'll only be our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren that live in a world where there's no free speech. And and so that's that's one of my biggest concerns about Biden taking over. And I think, again, like anything else, we have the ability to affect that. I think the more... Americans are talking about the dangers of totalitarian China. The more we can locate Taiwan on the map, the more we can realize those 24 million people, which is literally about the same size as the country of Australia, have a have a fundamental right to be free um, and realize that if if we don't kind of confront China and they take Taiwan, what, what stops them from taking Australia? You know, they're not very happy with Australia. They're they're you know, and, and that's the other thing that that if you follow some of the uh, news about what's happening in in Southeast Asia, um, you realize very quickly that this BS about the whole problem with China is just Donald Trump trying to cause problems. That is a fairy tale. And you realize that they're having problems and they're killing people on the border with India. They have done all kinds of things to screw over the government of Bhutan. Most people don't even know where Bhutan is. Not exactly a huge country, but not not small enough that China doesn't want to somehow get its hooks in. Um, We know what's happened with Hong Kong. They've lost all freedoms. You say anything the government doesn't want today, doesn't like today in Hong Kong, and you could be arrested and put in prison for life. Um, so, you know, we, we see this huge danger and I think that it's very possible, um, that, uh, this is great. I'm answering the phone and sending a message back to the person without anyone knowing it on the air. No, I'm, I I should keep my phone further away or, or, or just not tell us and maybe we won't know. (laughs) That's right. I knew I could have gotten away with it, but I thought it would, you know, create more interest here. What an interesting pair. They take calls and talk to us. Um, No, anyway, uh, that I I think uh, the issue of China and its place in the world and our place in the world is critical and that we dodged a huge bullet. We dodged a bullet because in 2014, uh, Taiwanese students occupied the Wan, their local, their national legislature, and stopped a trade deal with China that would have allowed China to effectively just buy Taiwan outright. And I think that was a huge turning point in the history of the world. I, I probably won't live long enough to see whether I'm right, but I think it was. And I think Donald Trump somehow threading a needle to beat Hillary Clinton not only saved my First Amendment rights to speak politically, because the Democrats would destroy all that, would rewrite the First Amendment to zero out, uh, you know, my First Amendment rights to allow incumbents in Congress to regulate what people can say about them, as they've already been trying to do. So there's that. But there's also, I think, the the threat of of a world where free speech is on the run and that's the world China wants. And so I think, I think as, as we go forward in this next four years, I think we, we dodged a bullet 
by Trump being elected and confronting China. And whether you love him or you hate him, I think that that's the truth. And we have to figure out going forward, are we going to go back to sleep or are we going to confront China? And I think it's so easy for people to say, well, we don't want to get in a war. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to have to, you know, can't we just go back to everybody's happy? Well, that's, you know, that's not, that doesn't lead, I think, to the right decisions in the same way that uh, when Neville Chamberlain went to Hitler and said, look, we'll give you the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia and, uh, and came back and said, look, peace in our time. We've got the agreement. And I have fears that we will, when push comes to shove, we will wimp out and say, look, we don't want to go to war and give China Taiwan and say we're not going to defend it, even though we've made numerous uh, um, uh, promises that we would. And again, it's, it's up to the American people what folks want to do. I don't think I have a right to force you or any listener to go defend Taiwan or defend anybody that we don't agree you know, needs to be defended. But I think that we are getting in a world in which we need real alliances, not the sort of NATO alliances where we then, you know, pay all the bills and, and are carrying all the load. And we can't carry all the load in, in Southeast Asia either. But it seems to me that the countries there are very much concerned about what's happening. And so there's there's some huge opportunities. And I think that actually in engaging with countries and trying to create alliances that protect regions of the world, we can stop policing the entire world. Like I'd like to see, uh, uh, and maybe we'll write something about this next week, but I'd, I'd like to see Trump pull out of Afghanistan right now. Say, look, we're, we're leaving. And um, because otherwise, no president, no matter what, I mean, he wanted to do that day one, getting into office, Obama was gonna do the same thing. Increasingly, it looks like the military won't let you. No, they're not gonna leave. And so it'd be interesting to see that push come because I think we've done stupid things, engaging in regime change wars that that are of no consequence except negative consequences, making the world less safe. And then we would ignore free countries who are facing, you know, the the 1.4 billion uh, nation Chinese, and uh, you know. It, it seems to me that's where free people have an interest in connecting with other free people. And so that's that's, I think, something that uh, that I want to I want to push more and more because I think it's absolutely critical. In your piece, uh, Landscape with Trumpians. Uh, yes. You quote uh, Keniston Kennecott. Some of your listeners may be wondering where you're getting this idea of, of, of a huge onslaught of anti-free speech stuff is coming from. Well, you quote Kennecott basically arguing very weirdly for for kind of cultural revolution and kind of crackdowns on free speech. I know it's not, he doesn't say it at point blank, but he does say things like, constant surveillance of the thoughts we think, the words we use, and the assumptions we make. Who's doing the surveillance well, here? 
He now now he says he's talking about self surveillance. Oh yeah. But but I I have the same suspicions you have. One, spending a whole lot of time walking on eggshells all the time. We we don't help anybody if we can't openly discuss discuss issues of race. We're not gonna we're not gonna have progress. This idea that everyone's got to constantly be worried about what they're saying and what their thoughts are, and the, it's like it's like creating our own totalitarian world around us. And you know that if we don't do it well enough, they're going to help us create that totalitarian world around us. But think about that someone could write this is he wrote this, and it was published in the Washington Post to say, constant surveillance of the thoughts we think. Now, most of us think about what we say. Sometimes there's a few of us who maybe should have thought twice before they said it. But you know what? That is not the problem our society in this world face. The problem in this world is not everything was going great and then a couple people shot off their mouth and said something stupid. Let people say stupid things. That's how we correct them. We hear them and go, oh, wait, you're way off. And and this idea that instead we need lynch mobs, basically, to run around and police everybody, um, and that we need to spend all this time going through all of our thoughts and wondering if we're white, what's wrong with us? And don't wonder that if you're black or if you're brown. And I guess if you're if you're yellow and of course, none of us are actually these colors, but you get the point, then you're not even really a minority anymore. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do, whether you're supposed to be part of the, you know, the uh, oppressor class or the other. This is in a society that is the most welcoming to new people, to people of different races and different religions of any society I'm aware of on the planet. And and maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm I'm open to anybody who would correct me on that if maybe we're not. But boy, it sure seems like we are. And it sure seems like there's a lot of people trying to come here. And if we're the most evil, terrible people in the world, why are people trying to come here? Why aren't people trying to escape? It's it's you know I think that the cages that the Obama administration used on the border and then the Trump administration used on the border and so on, it's, you know, that's not, I, it seems to me that's not the sort of policy that there are better ways to do it there, you know, but, but there is a problem with people coming in and we have laws that say you can't and so on and so on. And we could debate all of that. Um, and we, we should at some point. Um, but here, during that entire, you know, hyper news focus on it, so often they were referred to as Nazi-like, you know, concentration camps. We have concentration camps in our country. And it, it reminds me of kind of the far left during the Cold War, who we're no different than Russia. We do the same. We and when Ronald Reagan, who our State Department tried to twist his arm and stop him from saying it, but when he went to Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, 
The State Department didn't want him to say it. It might have ruffled feathers, just like Pompeo, our Secretary of State, saying just the other day, uh, maybe it was today uh, or yesterday, uh, saying that Taiwan's not part of China. Oh, that caused ruffled feathers, and China threatened action, like invading or bombing or killing, as if somehow that's now Pompeo's fault. I always think the people who bomb and kill are the bad guys, not the people who call them out. Um, but anyway, this, this, uh, 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 I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. Where am I going with that? Well, I was wondering, uh, if you wanted to comment on any of our comments on that. I did, but I hate to put glasses on cause I can't see and I don't have any glasses. I have like 50 pairs of glasses, never any around me. I don't know where they're kept. It's like somewhere there's just this vault of just millions of glasses. Uh, anyway. Okay. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, we had a few comments, but I haven't really studied them carefully. We had from Pat and Pam and Thomas Johnson and John F. Brennan, and uh, they were all positive to what you wrote. So I guess there's really no reason to... To, to go, in, go into them in depth. No one was challenging you at the uh, deep well, part of your was, thesis. There was one challenge, and that was Joe Biden is the president. I think that was a joke. Right. I'm almost certain that was a joke. Uh, well, maybe we skip that. And it's uh, I do have to like find some way to print stuff out more. I find now that almost anything I print out, I cannot read. It's like in the last few months... Uh, like this script here, I can read. It's small enough. But if the script is more than like 280 words and it has to be a little smaller font, I cannot read it without glasses. And it's just like on these, they're so small that I I have to wear glasses. I hate that. I what, hate. what you hold that up for the people because you printed that off of a PDF. Uh, every day we make a PDF that that people can uh, can uh, share with their friends and take home and put in a book for all I know. But uh, well. And, and look at this next one we're going to do. This is voting in black and white. But because this was a longer wrap-up of the election and was like almost 400 words instead of our usual 275, something like that, uh, it's so tiny. It's one of those things that I think if I put on my glasses, I'd have to squint a little bit. Um, anyway, but it's a it's – a, and usually we have such pretty pictures, but I think uh, this graphic was pretty good, even though it's just black and white. Well, I think it gets the idea across. Do you want to head to that right now? Let's do. Let's do. Um, so that's voting yeah. in black and white. It was on November 10th, and uh, it has a big black and white square for the image. So if you go to thisiscommonsense.org and uh, search for voting in black and white, you will find it. And the truth is we had, I think, when it comes to direct democracy, things that were on the ballot where voters could vote yes or no on a specific issue, we did not seem to have such a divided country. All the issues didn't come down to 52-48 or 51-49 or whatever. Um, and there were some things that were pretty interesting. We talked last week about uh, Prop 16 in California, which was the uh, they had ended affirmative action, racial and gender preferences and uh and employment and education and so on and there was an effort to bring those racial preferences back uh as well as gender preferences and 
it's it's sort of interesting because you wouldn't think of anywhere in the country that would be more pro having race involved as helping you know create diversity and and the ballot title I thought was very favorable it said would allow diversity to be one of the factors not the main factor just one of the factors and you see it that we just want a little bit of racial preference to be put in there we just want to use race a little bit and of course they want to use it a lot but in California I mean, you'd have to think that a measure like that, if it could win anywhere in the country, it's going to win in California, maybe win big. And then you realize that they spent $30 million against a million and a half. And yet the people of California, clearly, uh, I believe it was 56-44, so better than a 10-point win, defeat that. And we went through a whole list of of initiatives in in this particular script. But a number of tax initiatives, they they went after Prop 13 in California, and that was beaten back. They went after the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in Colorado, and that was beaten back. Uh, Illinois had the uh, measure on the ballot to go to a progressive income tax, and the governor gave $54 million to that effort. And every Democratic official, the public employees unions, teachers unions, all the different uh, groups came out and that went down in flames in a very blue state, Illinois. And so again and again, the initiative process is a great uh, escape hatch. If the public says, well, you're going crazy, for instance, in California, They also is one of the places in the country that has rent control and they wanted to expand it because see, rent control is a great way to keep rents down. Not all rents, just rents for a few people. Like I remember in New York years ago when it came out that Congressman Charlie Rangel had a rent controlled apartment that he was actually using as an office. Uh, which is technically illegal, but he's a Democrat, so there was no investigation, no no big problem. And of course, I don't think he needs to be thrown in prison for it. He probably thought it was okay. You know, he's a powerful guy. So what Californians did, uh, and I believe that was what, uh, Prop 21, I think it was? Yeah, uh, Proposition 21, is to say, no, localities can't expand rent control. And rent controls, you know, basically this idea that somehow the government's just going to slap controls on everything we buy and sell so that we love the price, that's not how the, the world quite works. And how rent control works is that all kinds of people who are wealthy people get a hold of an apartment and hold it forever at some ridiculous price. It doesn't help the average person. It certainly doesn't help a lot of poor people. And of course, even if it helped poor people, you know, if you want to come into society, you know, go find some place that's going that way. Uh oh. <laughs> but it is, it's just ridiculous to think that somehow the government needs to get involved in deciding what the price of an apartment is. Um, and, you know, every place they've used it, it has not been uh, a good, a good thing. And, of course, the proof's in the pudding because the voters of California said, no, please don't. Uh, 
uh, and I believe it was Prop 22, the voters of California, we have written numerous pieces about AB5, that's Assembly Bill 5 in California, and it basically was an attempt by pro-union people to destroy any sense of uh, independent contractors, everyone has to be an employee, everybody has to be getting all kinds of bennies, so that people don't look to folks who might be cheaper to do a service because it's like the federal government using the, uh, uh, you know, they, they always have to pay the, I think what they call fair market value. or well, it's, it's, it's prevailing wages for one. Prevailing wage. Isn't that the old Davis-Bacon Act from the 30s, 40s or something like that? Jim Crow legislation designed to not help blacks? You know that's interesting. I have heard that, and I don't. I don't know enough to to know for certain. But I think that you're right that it was kind of originally designed to like push black workers out. But what it does is to basically say the federal government, when it contracts for labor, needs to pay the highest possible cost that they can pay. Whoever has charged the most, that's the price they need to pay. And you know, no business does that because it's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. You're like saying, I'm going to spend as much as I as much as I can justify instead of as little as I have to. So anyway, it's it's a it's a mess. But the the goal was to shut down the uh, freelance market and for all kinds of things. um you know, you're. We work together. You're an independent contractor. All kinds of people I work with are independent contractors. I suspect there are some cases where they might want to be more than an independent contractor and go to work for someplace. But in most cases, I don't think so. I think that they like the freedom to work with various different clients, and and of course, again. That's why we have the thing called freedom, or at least we were supposed to have that. Where do they go? That's up to people to make choices. And on Thursday, the price of freelancing is eternal vigilance, talked about Prop 22, and the fact that uh, one of the big, I, I was about to call it collateral damage, but I don't think it was collateral damage. I think it was intended damage, was to make it, impossible for Lyft and for Uber to work in California. And I always kind of liked Lyft and Uber. I think now I have taken a Lyft uh, one time, but even before I'd ever taken them, I like when people enter the marketplace um, because it tends to have an effect on what price I pay, whether, whether I go with them or not. For, for instance, I, I, uh, I don't fly Southwest that often. Because uh, usually their fares, I usually don't have enough advance notice because I'm not flying for pleasure. It's like, oh, I got to go somewhere. And uh, and so I don't have as as enough advance to usually be able to get one of their super saver fares. But the fact that they're in the market, I see the prices come down. And so I like Southwest even when I'm flying someone else because I think they had a good impact on that. And I before I'd ever taken any Uber rides, um and I have to say, it's been a, just a fantastic service. Um, nothing against cab drivers. I've, I've had a lot of good conversations with a lot of good cab drivers. But I, I have never had a bad Uber ride. Never. 
And I'm sure I've taken it 50, 100 times. Uh, so anyway, uh, I like Uber. Obviously, the people competing don't like it. And part of the complaints in different places, like in New York, where you have to pay $250,000 to get a little medallion that says you can be a cab driver. They complain about Uber coming in and they don't have to do all the same things. Well, the solution is not to make Uber or anybody who wants to get in the cab business come up with $250,000. The solution is to open up the marketplace and let people compete. So anyway... The people of California, and of course, this initiative was funded by Uber and Lyft and, and other folks like that. But the people of California put a stop to AB5. And uh, at least as far as Uber and Lyft are concerned. And there are court cases, a zillion of them, going after that law in other ways. So that's great. Another victory at the polls. Uh, which were, when it comes to initiatives, one of the nice things is they are black and white because they're written down in black and white. The text is there, can't change. Not like politicians where they can change after you vote for them. It stays the way it is. Now, sometimes courts get a little bit crazy, but uh, we, can't, we can't solve every problem immediately. Um, but but that's, that is a huge change, and it's not a... We've elected people who promised to change it. It's changed right at the source. It's why I love initiatives. Um, but it's interesting. We had some great comments on this particular piece, some really super uh, comments. And, um, and I, I go to thisiscommonsense.org, read these in full because I, I can't do them justice. But Tom Knapp, who's often a commenter, oftentimes uh, – Taking us to task here or there, checking us, checking our work. Um, and he says, where are the socialists on this? Because Uber and Lyft ought to be what the socialists are talking about. Socialism is workers controlling the means of production. And with Lyft, with Uber, they own their own car. They control the means of production and they use the company to get customers, but they have a tremendous amount of control, freedom. They make money or they wouldn't be doing it. They think it's worth their time. Who are you to judge? It's their time. And uh, and I think they are making money. I mean, it, this, things like this don't take off because people go, oh, I'm going to sacrifice. No, this is great for people. And I talk to Uber drivers and they'll, they'll talk about how they're doing different things. And this has been great because they can go work when they have free time instead of someone else dictating their time. Anyway, Tom Knapp makes the point that the socialists have totally missed the boat. And I think by implication that socialists are not so interested in modern socialists, I guess maybe I should say, in workers owning the means of production or controlling the means of production, they're interested in government controlling the means of production. And this is a clear case of that. What they want is the government to push everybody into the little rat hole so that you, everything you get, all your benefits come from this source, this big employer that they can control. And the last thing they want is a society in which there are zillions of individuals pursuing their own interests independently, much tougher to control. Um, 
But then Pat, who is a, another regular uh, commenter, uh, I thought was great just because she asked this question, which I hate to tell you, Pat, you cannot be in the media. Asking questions like this is verboten in the media. They never ask how much anything costs. They never ask where the money's coming from. And they never ask her question, which is, where is Congress's authority to regulate these folks? And as I say her question, you may be out there thinking, what's he talking about? Congress, what's going on? Because I forgot to tell you the rest of the story. So a little save here from uh, uh, what's his name? I am I uh, oh the great radio guy the rest of the story this is Paul Harvey yes Paul Harvey with the rest of the story the rest of the story is that we're safe Uber Lyft they're safe in California in California when an initiative passes the legislature cannot change it without sending it back to the voters so there's some safety in California but wait a second Joe Biden has endorsed AB5. There is a federal bill that has already been introduced. Pelosi likes it. The Democrats, probably a majority, like it. Now, if the two Senate seats in Georgia go Republican instead of Democrat, well, the Senate could stop AB5 at the national level. But if those two seats go Democrat, then we probably get AB5 at the national level. And if you're a freelancer, sorry, that's way too much freedom for a Democrat-controlled society, um, sadly. But, but that's her question is, what authority does Congress have? And you could make the argument that regulation of these services and so on, uh, you know, that the state has the power to do that. But the federal government has the power to come into each state and regulate people who are doing freelance work? And again, why? What is the impetus behind this? It's not the freelancers. They're not demanding it. The unions and the powerful folks are demanding it because the truth is the freelance part of our society is growing. The gig economy is growing. And they want to be able to control that and stop it so that their rent-seeking businesses can do better. Their businesses that thrive on having control of entry into that business. And Michael Rechtenwald, in his Beyond Woke and other uh, books recently, uh, would argue that this is an example of corporate socialism. Because the socialism that the Democratic Party offers is not the classical socialism. Now, people like Ocasio-Cortez and so forth, AOC, they will talk about, you know, very, you know, very classical kind of socialist ideas. But what the Democratic Party is offering is big corporations running as much as possible and the government working hand in hand with those organizations. Right. Well, the day before, on Wednesday... We had the commentary, not above the law. And this is a story about government at its absolute worst. Because it's, it's a story of a guy named James King, who is from Michigan and was 
walking down the street one day, and a couple of plainclothes policemen accosted him. Now, he didn't know they were plainclothes policemen. Uh, he thought he was being mugged and resisted and ended up being beaten uh, at one point kind of unconscious and uh, just a brutal, brutal beating. There are links at the website. This is commonsense.org. Go to the script, not above the law. Uh, you can see what his face looked like, what, what happened to him. But this is just, you know, if he was a violent criminal, he shouldn't be beaten like that. Turns out they've got the wrong guy. And he committed a crime, but they did slap a couple of crimes on him. They charged him with resisting arrest. I believe there was some other charge. And then, of course, as more came to light, they ended up backing off of that. But it's kind of a has been dubbed as a common police tactic that when you're in the wrong, file a bunch of charges and hope that the person just says, what can I do? I just want to extricate myself from the situation in which one side has the power of the state and the other side has no no power anywhere close to that. And <clears throat> this person was, uh, I mean, you can't think of anything worse other than being killed uh, to be treated like that. So then to, to you know, uh, do insult to injury, they they charge him, they back off of that. But in the end, say, he can't prosecute us for what we did because we did it as police officers. And we have what's known as qualified immunity. There's a lot of debate about this now when, when people do kind of hear it and get a sense of what this is, because these terms are fairly new. Uh, I think a lot of us were not really aware of this aspect of the criminal justice situation um, and in some ways are more aware of it with other people in government who say, oh, sh gee whiz, I'm sorry, <laughs> my actions, you know, caused all this harm, but you can't do anything because I work for the government and we have to give you permission to sue us. Um, these individuals, and this is not rare, it's happening all the time with qualified immunity, the standard has become that if you can't somehow prove that the police officers who beat this person senseless and within an inch of his life, that they knew somehow they weren't supposed to do that. And the only way they could know that is if they knew of another case exactly like that where it had happened before. And that could be shown in court. Other than that, they're immune to any prosecution because they're doing their job. And how could they know that beating someone almost to death was not part of their job? And I, I, got, I have to think, because I thought the same thing, that anyone who's not familiar with this subject and who's hearing me say this is thinking, who is this lunatic who's just making this stuff up? Go to thisiscommonsense.org. Go to not above the law. Click on some of the links, because when you read it, you're going to go, OK, I hear what you're saying, but this has got to be just phony. Click on and see some of the things. Cato Institute has a lot of good stuff on this subject. But that's what we're talking about is letting police officers off 
because somehow we can't prosecute them when it is obvious that they have assaulted in a vicious, brutal way. Go look at the, and we don't have it at the website, so you have to click on a link to go see the ugly, brutal pictures of this person's face. Just, it, it will affect you. This is now at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to weigh in, thanks to the Institute for Justice, and too bad they can't take everybody's case in America, and, and but they can. So the rest of us actually have to get off of our butts and do something about the fact that we have a criminal justice system that is way off the rails. But finally, they have gotten a case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it is Brownback versus King. And, um, and this case, if you look into it, you will be shocked that this can happen in America. He's not a black man. He's a white man. So anybody who thought, well, of course, in racist America, the biggest thing that bothers me about the it's racist America every time we talk about criminal justice is it ignores all the, the complete horrible injustices that are committed against white people. If you are white and you think that this is all going down against just black folks, you have another thing coming. I drive very carefully. Um, so this is, I think, a huge issue. It doesn't get covered uh, nearly enough in the media. Uh, but this whole question of, of uh, qualified immunity, which basically sprang up out of a Supreme Court case, there's nothing in the federal law that says these folks have immunity. In fact, if you read the actual law, it seems to say they don't. It seems to say they don't have any immunity, and any time they violate someone's rights, they can be held personally liable. Um, now, maybe there's some there's some way to thread the needle perfectly, but beating someone who's innocent of any crime nearly to death, and then thinking you can get away with it, you, we don't live in a free country. If if this doesn't get rectified, you. You, we just don't live in a free country anymore, and uh, so this is a this is a really important one. Not above the law. We'll be talking more about this, uh, but if you're not familiar with it, you ought to get familiar with it. And then our final, the latest fake mystery on Friday, November the thirteenth. Oh, that's pretty scary. You know, this is one that there was an article in USA Today, and and uh, there's been other articles like this basically kind of taking conservatives to task for leaving Twitter and Facebook, which both of those social media platforms have been nothing but aggressively anti-conservative, have thrown people off uh, the service for no justified reason whatsoever, have in some cases, um, you know, basically held the New York Post hostage, like the fourth largest circulation paper in the country, I think, uh, is like banned from doing anything. Why? Because they had a story about news that was, they got the news because it was hacked. Only problem being, it wasn't hacked. Yeah, they just made that up. It wasn't hacked. <laughs> Hider, uh, Hider, 
<laughs> Hunter Biden. I wanted to say Hunter and Biden at the same time. It comes out anyway. Uh, but but he left the laptop. Lab 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 top. I can't say anything. I believe it was a MacBook, by the way, of some sort. A MacBook. Pro. Oh, was it? I'm pretty sure it was. So. Oh, I won't go into Mac or PC or anything. I'm I'm restraining myself. But uh, he left the laptop there, so there's no hacking. And of course, if you don't print hacked stuff, well, then the Pentagon Papers doesn't get printed. All kinds of the papers are full of hacked stuff. That's most of the news. We're just trying to figure out whether it was really hacked or whether the paper just made it up or somebody made it up and gave it to the paper. So completely ridiculous, completely ridiculous. And yet, how many weeks? The New York Post is not allowed to, nobody can link to the story. This is, we are living in a very, very weird time. And so what do you do if you, if all the social media platforms, now it's not quite censorship, and we're going to use the word censorship, and just all of the people who don't like that, just correct us just again and again and explain to everybody, I'm sure it'll all work out. But it is censorship. And it's censorship, as, as people commonly know that term. It's not the government. But, of course, we know that they have certain privileges and so on from the government. But it doesn't even matter. If McDonald's starts discriminating against people, I'm going to stop going to McDonald's. And I'm going to raise, holy, you know what about it? And the reason is, is because that impacts our lives. And we're not just ideological folks. We're like real live folks who want to live in a society that makes sense and that creates harmony and friendliness and goodness. And and so we have every right to scream at the top of our lungs and we have every reason to leave those platforms. Now, I can't really afford to leave Facebook with what I've invested in it, but I can afford to start leaving Facebook. And this this week, I got a MeWe account uh, and already have some friends on MeWe. In fact, funny, almost all of them are friends I had on Facebook. There is a parlor, I understand. I've never uh, been to that particular. Somebody mentioned that site. I've never been there. I don't know anything about that. But uh, there is what I'm on Minds, I think, dot com. But I'm not sure that I've ever done anything there. But here's the bottom line. We are going to do stuff there. We are going to move out of Facebook. And if, if for no other reason, just to leverage Facebook, because if they're allowed to have a monopoly on social media, and they have nearly a monopoly right now, that's a real, real problem. And it's not just a, uh, you know, it's been made out by so many on the left that it's either that we want to go say extremist things, which, of course, I've, I have no problem. Uh, I've, I don't know of anything I've ever said on Facebook that's been banned, but I know other people who've said almost the exact same thing and been banned. So, it, it look, it doesn't make sense. But it's the other thing that's argued is that somehow we, we don't want the discussion. We want to be in our own echo chamber. And it's like you just, you want to slug them in the head. I mean, my goodness, here you are being like forced off this platform because you have an opinion that cannot be heard. 
And then the people who are in favor of you being forced off the platform because you have an opinion that must not be heard, complain that you're leaving and complain that you're only leaving because you don't want to hear other people's opinions. I mean, it's if heads explode. Oh, my goodness. Well, that reminds That's- me of bullies in the play yard. One of the classic bully moves is to kick the kid who's down and then says, why aren't you getting up? You know, that's, remember, remember that, that, that is actually a classic bully move is to, you know, shoves kid down and then kick him a few times and says, why aren't you getting up? Why aren't you getting up? Or my, the favorite, you know, sister or brother thing in the car is I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Remember? <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's the sort of thing where I love, I have, I have a lot of friends on the left, on the right. I love discussions. Uh, I like to see people disagree. Uh, I have a, a good friend who just recently got married. He's, he's my age, old man. Uh, but he just recently got married and I love his wife so much. She is a San Francisco liberal and, but she is who she is and she says it straight out and she doesn't, you know, she might give you a hard time if you're on the other side but it's within kind of a friendly environment. And, and it's, you know, I love that back and forth. Um, You know, I don't know what you would do if you just had everybody who's agreeing with you all the time. Uh, I've never run into that problem, but I worry that I could someday. (laughs) I've found that decreasingly possible. So uh, as I, as I no longer believe things I believed 10 years ago, (laughs) Well, and, and of course, if you get together with everyone who agrees, well, then you find a little tiny disagreement because there's got to be some. That's, that's what life's all about is disagreement. But it's, it, it is just silly that we have reached this point in which, again, freedom of speech is not appreciated the way it should be in its homeland, which is America. And we have to export it to the rest of the world and we've got to protect it here. And part of that is going to be going to the trouble. I mean, some people on Facebook's there, you just go. If you're liberal, you just go and you can talk and they won't shut you down. Um, But we as conservatives or libertarians or people who want a platform, might be totally liberal, but want a platform in which everybody's welcome. Those folks, we got to go find our own platform. And the truth is, like a lot of things, uh, the moment we find our own platform, Facebook might, or, or maybe a few moments before, Facebook might get a lot better. They might learn how to deal with their algorithms and how to train their people not to stomp on conservative voices. Probably not. Probably it won't be until enough people have left to diminish their brand that all of a sudden they figure it out. Uh, But we'll see. That's up to them. We have to develop an alternative. We cannot allow another election to take place anywhere where all the means of communication are controlled by people who don't believe in free speech. And that's what we, that's, we are, we are in, the most precarious situation for freedom of speech 
that I think America's been in since World War One, and Woodrow Wilson deciding that if you didn't support his war effort, you should be arrested and imprisoned. And uh, and we ought to we ought to take this awfully seriously. Now I am on uh, Facebook too much, like you're on Facebook a lot. Uh, I have been on Minds for a long time, but don't care for the platform very much. I am often on Gab. I like Gab better than all the alternatives. However, and I have to admit it, uh, it's filled with anti-Semites. Every week I say something about, you know, I, I give pushback to some Hitlerian person. And I'm not joking about that. That's They're there because they were the first people kicked off of the major platforms. Is that the, the anti, and they went to Gab. Now, there's a lot of other people there. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's no... It's not at all the case that you're going to just see them everywhere. But since I was at Gab early, I befriend a lot of people who were anti-Semites, and I didn't know it, or were anti-Semite friendly. So I get a lot of anti-Semitism even after I've blocked a few people. I've blocked almost nobody on uh, Facebook. I've probably unfriended five people. Everyone male. I've never unfriended a female. I've never blocked a female on Facebook. Yeah. So, and I want to know: does that make me misogynist? I, I, I haven't figured that out if, it's, if I'm misogynist for that. I'm sure I am for that reason, but I'm not sure uh, how. Uh, but anyway, uh, but in Gab, well, it's, that, it's that women have never thought they had license to be as obnoxious as men seem to think they have license to be. Although I, I, I get a lot of pushback from women, though, on Facebook. No, I do too, and there are there are. Some women who have said things at times that I've thought about, maybe I should just not, you know, not be their friend. Um, but I try to avoid that if at all possible. Um, and but I do find that, you know, you're going to have a lot more stuff said by men. One thing I don't like on Facebook is I don't like people leaving comments that have the F word, you know, I, I just don't I, you know, I just don't want that. I don't want someone else to come to my page to something I've posted and read the comments, and it's a bunch of stuff like that. Social media is encouraging, you know, a lot of the a lot of the bad behavior. I think the other part of it, I guess, for me, I want to be on there because I want to reach people. But I really feel like over this last year, it has it has dawned on me, and then I think I've internalized it to some degree that. The goal of this podcast, the goal of thisiscommonsense.org, where Monday through Friday we're doing scripts, one one each day, and where we have uh, Today in Freedom, where we're talking about what happened historically today that's noteworthy, and you know, thought of the day where somebody says something that hopefully inspires people to, you know, make this world a more free and prosperous and wonderful place. We are doing all that. Not so much to convince people who disagree with us <clears throat> that we are right and they are wrong. And even if you take away the right and wrong, not so much to attract people who have a different idea and change their mind. I mean, not that we don't want to do that. We do. And it happens. And it's nice. And they usually say thank you. Uh, um, but that's not how we create a freer society if you're listening to this podcast and you're hoping that it'll reach more people 
so that and change their minds so that we'll all agree we're going to do X, that freedom and, and rights and rule of law will will prevail. I don't think that's how it happens. I think that this program and what I'm trying to do by speaking out in this way is to reach people who will work with me and work in their community to do things to make our society freer and more accountable. And that's not, I'm not looking for people who uh, we need to debate and read the literature for the next six months. I'm looking for people who will find, you know, our email address and email me and go, what can I do? Or, hey, do you know what we're doing in Dubuque? We're doing this. And, and I go, oh, that's good. Maybe we could do that elsewhere. We, I don't want to convince people they're wrong and I'm right. I want to find people who agree with me that America is a wonderful place because of the level of freedom that the individual has had historically and that we need to protect that and guard that and not let that get stripped away. And, uh, and so that's what this program's about. And I hope you will contact us and get involved and keep doing what you're doing. That's, that's the pitch. We need people to help us. Let's work together. If you disagree, go read a book. If you agree, after you read it, come talk to us and let's, let's work together. Okay. This is Friday the 13th. And this is This Week of Common Sense. And people should go to thisiscommonsense.org. Seven days a week. Five days for commentary, two days for this podcast.